Hey everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Pioneer Podcast. That's right, it's the patron episode. Uh, this episode's for you, by you, and uh, we're kind of just along for the ride, I guess, Ross? I mean, they just, we're like, we're like a dancing monkey, right? They just tell us what to do and we do it. <laughs> we're, we're puppets. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, that's fine. <laughs> that's Gotta give the people what they want every now and again. Yeah. It's like a slot machine, you know, pays off just enough to keep them coming back. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you go play golf, we always talk about it, like, you could just shoot horrible, horrible round, but you hit that, like, one good shot on, like, 16 or one good shot on 17, and you're like, yeah, and it, like, brings you back. It's like, it's like, it's like, uh, there's this meme, it's like, I fucking hate you, and I'll see you tomorrow. It's like what you say to the golf course <laughs> every time you leave, like, whatever, so. Yeah, that sounds like golf. Yeah, just for everybody at home, it is September 10th. Um, we're recording this on a Thursday. I don't know when this will be live. I'm assuming as soon as possible as Brent can get it out. But uh, it just depends on when he gets this one because we're also going to be recording our top eight episode this week weekend with the full spoiler being out. That's kind of why this week's been a little different than normal. Like we don't have an episode earlier in the week, and yeah, you know we're got to wait to get the full full. Uh, uh, card list yeah. from the new set. We also need the visual spoiler as well for all the cards that we have on there as well because, because you know, we can't have a, a show on Twitch where we can't show the card. You know what I mean? It just doesn't... It's not the same not having, you know, something visual to put up there. But, uh, yeah, as I was say, you were... Uh, I gotta say, I'm, I'm sorry the Jazz are no longer in the playoffs but you were watching some NBA right before this. Um, I know that I had a really fun day watching sports yesterday. Uh, I was say... You even messaged well, me about good it. good for you, Tannen. Well, I mean, I, for, for anyone who doesn't know, which you probably do if you've listened to the show before, I am quite possibly the biggest Braves fan in the entire world. I follow the team meticulously all the way down to the minor leagues. And uh, the Braves set the record for most runs ever scored in a game by a National League team yesterday with a whopping 29. Yeah, that's right. Actual, factual 29 runs. Does it, does it really count? towards that record if they're playing it under the american league rules yeah they have the dh it now. seems like they should be compared to other american league okay, teams I will, I will say they this. have a dh no, no no i will say this one thing that makes it legit in my eyes when you when you especially when you bring this up is that ender inciarte started in center field for us uh this guy used to be kind of almost all-star caliber player um i think he's literally unplayable now but for some reason our manager just keeps touting about there if you take Every player in the major leagues right now and average out their um, exit velocity off the bat, like how hard they hit the baseball, Ender is dead last in the entirety of the major leagues. And what he is averaging right now is actually below the average exit velocity of pitchers last year. So he was actually worse than a pitcher. Okay. you Just because your team sucks My team doesn't sucks. let you bypass this issue, this asterisk on the record. You know... That's that's the, the not the that's not the rules that are telling you you have to play under NCRT in your lineup. Yeah, that's your manager being an idiot or knowing something that we don't know. Probably the latter, and so that does nothing to convince me that this asterisk doesn't exist. You can't. You, What's the record for runs scored by an American League team? Thirty. Okay, it was sounds the, like uh, you're in second place then. Yeah, it was the Texas Rangers against the Baltimore Orioles. I think it was about ten years ago, maybe a little more, maybe even like twelve years ago. Funny thing. Two members of the Braves were involved in that game. Um, our bench coach and infield coach, Ron Washington, was the manager of the Texas Rangers for that game. And Nick Marcakis, who is an outfielder for us, actually played that game, but on the losing side for the Baltimore Orioles. So this one was a little bit more fun for him instead of having to watch 30 runs. Because here's the thing. When you're the team that scores 30 runs or 29 runs, 
that's fucking fun, right? Like everyone's just mashing the ball out of the ballpark. Everyone's killing it. You know, everyone's contributing, like blah, blah, blah. But when you're the other team and you have to play defense that long, like one of the innings, right? They scored 11 runs in one inning, one half inning, right? Like just their, their half of the inning hitting. It took over 40 minutes for that half inning. Can you imagine like standing in the outfield for 40 minutes and you're just like, please get somebody out. Because here's the best part. They did it. Shannon, there's a lot of people that stand regularly for more than 40 minutes. No, no, no. That's not I, an impressive feat. No, I didn't mean that, 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 you know, standing for more than 40 minutes. Can you imagine standing there like, can you please just strike someone out or get a ground ball at someone or just do something other than let them hit everything as hard as possible? You know, so. Well, apparently the answer to that was no. Yeah, the answer was just a resounding no. Um, so that was a fun game to watch. Uh, you know, I have a couple of friends that are also really big uh, sports fans and really big baseball fans and Braves fans in general. So we were having a good time, like, messing each other back and forth. And, uh, like, like I made a joke. I texted one of my friends at, like, 9 a.m. this morning, and I was like, hey, the Braves scored again. You know, like, <laughs> you know they're, they're still they're still plating runs or whatever. But, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. But uh, other than that, you've been up to anything the last few days? Uh, No. Just nothing. We've literally been doing nothing. Yeah, it's great. Because you're not having a versus live this week, right? With Corey doing coverage for the. Yeah, we did. We didn't have an episode of versus on Thursday, and so, uh, you know, once my article is done and we did our one episode of versus, I was you're like on vacation for the rest I of the week. Was off. Yeah. Uh, I've actually got a uh, mandate with uh, Brian Basoko planned for this weekend. Uh, a uh, taco place opened up in Baton Rouge that both of us like, so we're going to order some food from there and hang out. Maybe do some day drinking. And like I don't know, watch the what is it, what is it, the players? What is this one? The Mythic Invitational is that what it's called? Yes, the Mythic Invitational. The Mythic Invitational. Maybe watch some of that, even though I don't know. I can only watch so many Muxi. What's the, what's the plural of Muxus? Muxuses. Muxies. I can only I can only Muxuses. I can only see so many Muxuses get cast uh, before I I kind of give up or whatever. But I mean, I still remember we were talking about that set coming out. And I said, I, I think that card kind of could be a sleeper. I don't think anyone saw this coming, that it was going to be this broken and probably should be banned in that format, mm. but like, whatever. I didn't watch a single moment of coverage for this, so I have no idea. But apparently that deck is really good. I tried. And like, I understand that it's difficult, but coverage has not been a resounding success. Um, I th- So I thought I was going to like, you know, play the Monday open and then we've got a like, qualifier weekend. Is that this weekend, I think? Which is which I'm huge for, and then, like it's all historic. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll have to like get a historic deck together. And then I just kind of decided earlier in this week that I don't want to do that. I just don't want to play historic, and I'm pretty content with that decision right now. It seems horrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny that we're talking about this now because this will come up in one of the the Patreon questions. So it's kind of like a little lead in, a little teaser. So I gotta say this uh, when. <laughs> I think the format's fun. I've played some games with some fun decks, but there are the games where they just cast a Muxus on like turn three or whatever, and you're like, well, I am dead. You know, like I am just actual factual dead, right? And then you have to play the rest of the game weirdly because you, you have to stop that card in any way, shape, or form that you can. And that doesn't make for a fun format, you know? So Yeah, there's a it has that aspect that modern used to have where, you know, every deck just has some draws that you can't beat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's a significant amount of non-games and there's a significant feeling of helplessness, but there isn't the charm of modern where there's a ton of variety. Yeah. There's really like, you know, like six decks, right? Yeah. I see goblin decks. I see... Sultai uh, stuff. Uh, Sultai stuff decks. I see sacrifice decks. And I, I keep seeing this mono black gift, Godver's gift deck, but I don't think I've ever seen it win a game. 
Yeah, I, I, it had a lot of hype. I don't, I don't know if it's lived up to it. Yeah, it looks really sweet. The sacrifice decks like, are really cool too because there's all kinds of different versions of them. Like some of them are straight green black and have like collected company, and then some of them are Jund and have like yeah. Bolas's Citadel. Like there's some really cool yeah. innovation. And, and then there's the Rakdos Pyromancer deck, the Dreadheart Arcanist. I don't know thing. how much of that showed up at the Pro Tour because apparently it might not be good enough. Even though I find it fun and it's like kind of what I want to be doing. That's the deck that that Corey had been hyping up to me over the last week or so and said he had been crushing with but yeah you know I, I haven't seen much of it i think one top eight at the open but beyond that yeah i think i mean is, I, I think dreadhorde arcanist fundamentally kind of sucks yeah because it's a creature that doesn't actually pressure the opponent yeah because it only deals one you know we we've yeah. talked about that on the show before and you know i talk about that deck it's like i, th- I think it probably comes down to if does the is the is the deck capable of beating goblins and if your deck is not capable of beating goblins you better beat the shit out of everything else and that answer is probably no for that deck, so it's probably not a good call. Because here's the thing. While metagames do get shaped by tournaments like Mythic Invitationals and Pro Tours, it's not always the correct thing for when you're going into your next tournament because these tournaments are, like, amazingly small, right? Like, it's such a small group of people playing. It's such a small group of people working on it that sometimes you don't get the full picture. You know, it's like everyone's just trying to beat everyone within this tournament. And so sometimes you'll see stuff where, like, you're like, oh, yeah, this deck was really good, and then why did it just fall off the face of the earth? like, well, it was good for this tournament. You know, in like this exact metagame. And we'll have to see if that's what happens with Historic, but there's also a chance they just have a banning in the next couple of weeks or, or suspension, right? That's the format where they can suspend stuff. Yeah. D- does it get fading counters or whatever when you do that? Does it get its time counter? I mean, those are time counters. I, I corrected myself. I corrected myself. So like time counters. It's been a while since I've played Time Spiral, okay? Which we're when getting. It comes off the suspend list at his haste, so everyone has to play it that weekend. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like when uh, Jason and uh, Bloodberry Elf got unsuspended, you know, like unbanned. It was in every deck, and then we're like, oh, wait, these cards are just okay. You know, format. Yeah. And everybody was like... Somebody won with fucking Ponza. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. And it was a joke, and now Ponza's a good deck. Yeah, it was like tier one for I guess the joke's on us. Yeah, I guess the joke's on us, yeah. I mean, I'll I'll tell you this. For anyone who played when I played back in the day, like in the the early to mid-90s, you learned to respect Stone Rain. Stone Rain was a house back then, especially with like the weird ass mulligan rules, which nobody wants to don't even don't even look it up. Don't look it up. They don't exist. It was a bad dark time in magic. Don't look it up. The original mulligan rule was just all lands or no lands. Right. So if you had one land, you had to keep because you had to reveal your hand before you mulligan. And everyone was playing like Maze of So you'd have like six spells Maze of and you have to keep that hand. Good luck. Yeah. Hello and good luck. Welcome to Magic Gathering. You shouldn't put Maze of in your deck. Hey, man. It's it's Maze of it. It's it was busted. It's a spell on a land. Yeah. Well, it's 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 a spell that takes a land to drop. Well, we're about to find out how good that can be here soon. By the way, spells that are also yeah, lands. But, but it doesn't doesn't the point is it doesn't yeah, have yeah, it's not yeah. really a land in in the in a you know operational sense. Sure. Tell you what, I know we're gonna tangent a lot on the show here today, and uh, we don't have as many questions as the first one, but that's fine. We can get through this one, you know, quickly, and we'll fill in some stuff. Let's go ahead and just get to our first question. From one of our uh, most prolific question askers. I mean, we, we've basically been answering this question so far. Yeah. So it's a good segue. True. Yeah. From Lee McLeod. I wonder what Cass thinks of the formats of Magic. What formats are doing their job? And what even are their jobs? And what formats need to be changed and how? Uh, Pioneer, Modern, Historic, Standard, Legacy, Vintage. When this was asked, this was asked in mid August. So uh, stuff looked a little different, right? At the time, I would have yeah. very much argued that Pioneer was not doing its job. I think that it is now. And I kind of want to hark back to what you said earlier about how, like, 
you, you run into so many non-games or games where you felt like you couldn't do anything and your decisions didn't matter. And I feel like that's what Pioneer is trying to do, is it trying to be a format where you get to play meaningful turns of Magic where your decisions matter and it's not just me running my nut draw versus your nut draw, like you find in Modern yeah. and stuff like that a lot of times. And I think it's doing that job and moving towards doing that job. And when I say that, I think that Historic has the same kind of idea behind it you know what I mean? Like they they feel if if formats are close to each other, I feel like Pioneer and Historic are very close to each other, and Historic and Standard are very close to each other, and then everything else has a bigger gap be- between the two formats. And okay. and I feel like those are the formats where like they want you to play games of Magic and not just put your cards on the table. If you get what I'm saying by that. Yeah, I think they want you to do that in every format. Uh, it's just a question of whether or not they are successful in doing so. Right, you know that Watsy wants every format to be fun and interactive, and everybody loves it. But that you know, there the question is, you know, what percentage of non games are there, and how, um, how well, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, but you know how how much of a feel bad are those non games? There there are kinds of non games that are less feel baddy than others. Like where's the bar for that? Like where is it okay, and where is it like the breaking point kind of thing? Yeah, people don't really like losing on turn one. No. I, or turn, look, it's the quickest wins that people don't like as much, um, whereas the non-games that happen because, um, you know, it the non-games that happen because a card is really powerful, I think are a little bit more um, amenable because they give you, like, it's a... It, it gives you a clear path, like, okay, I've got to try to beat this card. Like, this is, you know, th- that's where the hole in my deck is. But if you're just dying on turn one and, you know, you're not putting Force of Will or whatever other interaction in your deck because you can't fit it for whatever reason, like, you just don't really have ways to counteract that. And it's just not fun to sit there, shuffle up your cards, and lose on turn one for, for a lot of people. Yeah. I frankly don't care. Yeah. Um, Same. Yeah. So th- there, this is gets into, a, I think a fundamental difference in how we interpreted the question. So you're talking about how, what the format is supposed to accomplish, you know, in terms of gameplay. And I think, you know, they just want the gameplay to be good. And there are certain aspects of each format that are different. You know, Pioneer doesn't have fetch lands. Standard is a little bit more mid-rangey than the other formats. Vintage is always a shit show. Legacy has Brainstorm, you know, and those things are charming and that's what the attractiveness to the format. Um, but you can those are constraints that they're willing to work under in order to create good gameplay. And hopefully they, they accomplish that, but good gameplay can manifest itself in a ton of different ways. The way I interpret the question is what exactly is the format supposed to be doing as it's a role within organized magic, within competitive magic, right? Standard is supposed to be the premier, a high level competitive format. Um, and yeah, it's been doing a pretty if that's your bad bar, job. Yeah, yeah. R- Ross could see it. You at home couldn't see it. I put a big thumbs down yeah. on the screen. Th- that said, I do think if we had had another couple weeks of this format, things might have gotten different. Maybe that's me being biased because I liked my Rakdos deck so much. Um, it still wouldn't have been great. It, it would have been a typical like three deck standard format, um, w- which is fine towards the end. The problem is everybody it was already so sour on everything that had gone on over the previous year, they weren't really willing to invest into the format after the bans for only a month or two. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
their early results certainly showed that it didn't really fix anything, but Sultai was still dominant. And now we're getting a similar effect where there is some pessimism about post-rotation standard, given the fact that Uro is still around and looks to be significantly more powerful than any other card. Who, now, who knew? You know, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic here because things always exist within context. And, you know, what are the cards that are going to be surrounding Uro in this format? And a lot of the bread and butter ones are gone. We don't have Hydroid Crisis anymore. We don't have Growth Spiral anymore. No Nissa. You know, yeah. We don't have Nissa who shakes the world anymore. So what what exactly are we doing with our Uros? No, we do have and now have things like Omnath and we have other things going on. It's still going to be powerful, but is it going to be dominant without that high density of incredibly powerful Simic cards to go along with it and make that core so flexible where you can add a color here or there to adjust to whatever the rest of the metagame is doing to, to combat you and get the right disruption in your deck for those things. So, you know, it's so when it comes to standard, I think it, that job has not been, you know, performed well when it comes to pioneer the the problem with pioneer has been that its job has been furloughed because of COVID, right and the historic is getting its job now because everything has to be on arena so right now pioneer doesn't really have a job and that's why nobody cares about it and it, it's a real real concern as to whether or not you know how long can this go on before Pioneer becomes completely abandoned and Watsi just has to cut their losses and say, well, I guess Historic is just going to be Pioneer or what Pioneer was supposed to be. Because right now they both fill like that a similar role. You can't be all standard for, because you need some variety. You need a secondary format, especially when things get stale and just to mix things up a little bit. Um, I, you know, I don't think high level competitive magic can, can sustain itself on. Uh, one format. So Pioneer and Historic are both filling that role. Pioneer was meant to do it, but when things had to go online, now Historic is filling that role. And yeah, so yeah, you and I definitely interpret this question slightly differently. And just kind of like as an overarching thing, you know, while I think every format has its warts, you know, I think that Standard for the past while has not been doing, it, doing its job, but I have high hopes going into the next set that it'll get better and maybe more diverse. Um, I think luggage and luggage, legacy and vintage are both just fine. Like they are what they are. We've accepted them for what they are, and they're they're good. Um, yeah, none of those have a real significant job within the scope of competitive magic. They really just exist to keep the people that l want to play those cards happy. And those people are always going to complain when they don't get enough tournaments. You know. Vintage players have long since given up, and they actually kind of, at this point, relish their outsider status. Legacy players enjoyed being the sort of eternal format darling uh, for a little while uh, in the mid-2010s, early 2010s, So, and are, are kind of bitter that they no longer are that. Um, are you calling me bitter? Yes. So that they're they just kind of exist to let those people like let people who like playing brainstorm and fetch lands play brainstorm and fetch lands let people that own Moxon be able to own them you know keep some value and, on the cards and, yeah yeah you know be able to own them as more than just collectors items and and maybe you know remember what it was like playing in 1994 uh, you know th those those formats are there for old people to reminisce. Uh, which is why it's somewhat problematic that the legacy format has changed so much over the last couple of years. 
So I actually think Legacy has been doing a poor job of upholding that job. I think it's fine. And Vintage has been whatever. I mean, and so it's just like finishing my thing. Um, I think Modern's fine. Um, I think Pioneer's good, like actually good. And then Historic, we'll see in a week or two. But right now, prob- probably not. It probably needed to be a little better, a little different. Modern, modern, I think, is doing a, a good job. It is now the sort of, uh, it's, well, it's not technically an eternal format, but it's the non-rotating format that is, uh, uh, or the kind of the old format that has some relevance to competitive magic, but not a ton. And it's a format that people are heavily invested into still. And, you know, that's kind of the, it's the, the graveyard of decks from, Pioneer and Standard, where, you, you know, no, that's not a great way of putting it. It's the place where you can build your kind of deck and succeed with it. So it gives people that are less inclined to read a metagame week in and week out and change decks as a result of those shifts a chance to compete on a level playing field by just, you know, identifying that, like, this is my kind of deck this is what I want to play, and I'm going to get really good at it by playing it over and over again for a long period of time. Um, and it, it's pretty good at that, though. Even modern, you know, again, the, these last couple of years of cards have had such a huge upheaval that some of those classic decks have been pushed out. Uh, part of it is also bands. You know, the the sort of Tier 2 Faithless Suiting decks, the Tier 2 Mox Opal decks uh, are all gone. But in terms of just offering exciting gameplay and a variety of different archetypes, Modern is still doing a good job. I think it's just that people that had a deck from 2014 probably have to update what they're doing. Yeah, I can't really like like Tron probably isn't the best choice right now. I'm like you you had a good run. Yeah, you know let, let's play something more appropriate for 2020. Uh, uh, and it, it, Modern is is still in good shape. Yeah, but absolutely agree. With we're gonna see. I, I'm I'm worried to to see what happens with between Pioneer and Historic, and I'm almost a little happy that Historic seems like a shit show. Because you know that well makes it, I think, Pioneer. less likely that it overtakes Pioneer. Yeah. I think Pioneer like is a great format with a lot of potential, um, and it's just run into these unfortunate. Circumstances. I'm going to find it really difficult um, when they quote unquote release Pioneer on Arena by the end of the year. You know, like we'll see if that still happens. But I'm going to find it really difficult when it doesn't resemble real life Pioneer. Like when you have all the cards because they're not going to have all the cards legal. Like I just can't see them being like, here's these thousand, you know, couple thousand cards we don't have. On arena, yeah, the, there's going to be arena pioneer and, and, and yeah, paper pioneer. And it's going to look gonna like historic. Like I don't even I don't know what to. Expect. I also I don't really understand what the desire was for them to just put these cards into historic. I think I think all of these sets are that are another hasty reaction to the reality that historic was going to be pushed into the limelight, and they knew that it wasn't going to get a ton of good hype if it was just standard plus. Yeah. You know, we had this happen right at the end of Extended's lifetime, right? Remember this one PTQ season where they made Extended just two years of sets? Yeah. Or three years of sets, whatever. It was just double standard. Um, And nobody was really excited for that. And it ended up getting ruined by Stoneforge Mystics the same way Standard did, which was kind of hilarious. And that led to the birth of Modern. But I I think, you know, that, that they saw the writing on the wall with Historic and they knew that they needed to juice the format a little bit to make it exciting. But they just kind of like picked arbitrary powerful cards to put in the format, and now the format is all about those cards. Like, it's it's really Thoughtseize, Pact of Negation, Muxus. Yeah, it's like really funny when I think about it because they kind of shoehorned a lot of them in through um, Amonkhet remastered, and like I draft a lot on Arena, right? 
And I remember drafting Amonkhet. And so like, oh, I'm like, oh, this is like, you know, some nostalgia. I'm drafting Amonkhet again. And then all of a sudden my opponent casts Anger of the Gods on me or Wrath of God or Thought Seizes me or in the middle of combat, somebody casts Collected Company on me the other day. I'm like, ah, yes, the Amonkhet experience, getting Collected Company in the middle of combat. <laughs> yes, I remember this. Yes, yeah. <laughs> or my, Should have played around my it, My opponent played like Lord of Extinction the other day. And it was just like a fucking 2020 or whatever. I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know we were playing Cube. You know, like, you know, should have played around it, exactly. Silly me, my mistake. Yeah, silly me, my mistake. But, uh, all right, let's move on to the next one, because this one's a long two-part question from from the chef himself. Um, big fan. Um, Ross and I were talking before the show. Whenever the world gets back to more of a normal place, we're both going to have to come visit some of these restaurants, because I'll tell you this. About once a week, he does, like, a picture dump in the um, in the food section of our Discord. In every single dish, I'm just like, yeah, I want that. There's never been a dish he's posted where I'm like, eh, I'm okay. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I want that. Like, He's a professional. That's what he does. Because, yeah. like, it, you know, there's something about it when you're a professional, right? Because, like, not only does it look good and, like, you know it's going to taste good because it's, it's well prepared, but, like, the plating's like a 10 out of 10 every time as well. And I'm not going to lie, I really appreciated the photos he had of his restaurant's uh, kitchen, like, after he cleaned it or whatever. I was like, I, I appreciate a nice, clean kitchen. But, all right, anyway. So uh, number one, uh, I'm gonna read this one off. It's really long. Let me get a let me get a moment here. Take some breath in. All right, hey guys, two topics. I've been playing Magic a long time, Legends, and have played competitively a lot competitively a lot over the years. I have a lot of friends who are pro tour players and grinders, and even extremely well known streamers. When we talk about Magic and we talked about decks and technology, it's very easy for me to concede points from them because of their successes, and ultimately what they do for a living. Why is the same not with food? As someone who's been cooking for 23 years on a professional level, I constantly have to hear about people's inputs about dishes that make no sense, much like what you have to hear uh, about inputs about magic that make no sense, but you sometimes just want to strangle people. I get this, okay. by the way. I just want to say yeah. this. I feel this on like a very uh, core level of, of magic. I do think it's important. I do think it's important to allow people to have opinions, Right. And try to talk to them in a way, and our gut reaction is, no, you're wrong, I'm right, and here's why I'm right, because I've been doing this for 25 years. And yes, that's probably going to be correct a, a large portion of the time because of your experience and because of your knowledge in whatever field it is, you are going to be right. At the same time, they can be right sometimes. You know, they can be right more often than sometimes as well. Also, it doesn't hurt to get someone else's opinion. Now, I'll say this. Cooking can be pretty solved in a lot of ways when it comes to certain things. And so can magic in some ways, you know, like the, you know, we know what doesn't, doesn't work in certain decks that have been around for 15 years or something like that. Right. But also you can see it as a moment, uh, or you could possibly educate someone, which I think is a big deal too. Right. Like you could take that moment to talk to them and be like, well, here's why it's done this way. Right. And here's why, uh, while your way like seems like a good idea, here's why it doesn't work or here's why this is better. It's not that you're wrong. It's that this is just more right, you know, kind of thing. And, I do feel it. And there's like that cynical side of me every now and then that's like, you know, I'll be hanging out in a group or whatever, or like I'll be at my LGS or something. And, you know, I'll be like, yeah, like I played this deck or they'll be like, why'd you play your deck? I'll be like, I, I liked this and this and this position here. And they're like, well, why didn't you do this? Or like, why didn't you do that? Or why didn't you play this? Why didn't you play that? And it, it does get annoying. I will admit it does get annoying, especially when it's not from someone that you um, look at as your equal peer in that field. Does that make sense when I'm saying, when I'm saying that way, someone that's like, yes. you know, doesn't have the results you do or doesn't have the pedigree that you do, but it doesn't mean we can't learn from it in some way. So I don't know. I try not to have those thoughts, but it's, I'm a human being and then, and you just do. Yeah. So I, um, 
in some ways, I'm going to be a lot more harsh than you, and in some ways, I'm going to be less harsh. Okay. But here, here's my take. Uh, one, I don't think the the stark difference here, in a general sense, is that uh, large. Uh, so, you know, he, he's talking about his own experience where he is willing to defer to his friends that are more experienced and ultimately better than he is, right? And he would like the, you know, the same sort of deference to him on something that he is, uh, you know, very experienced in, in, in cooking. Now, that's his, that's his personal experience, right? There are some people that are willing to defer and are, are more open to that. And the, the issue here on both sides is people that don't. And as someone who, you know, often gets that deference from others, sometimes when it's unwarranted, uh, but often does due to, you know, my history with the game, there are people that are very stubborn in what they believe and are just unwilling to listen to reason. And we encounter those people all the time. You know, one of the, one of those people is kind of like a meme where like they ask you for advice on a deck and then respond to your advice with justifications for why they're doing what they're doing and then don't change anything. So they're literally not, they're base. it's like they're asking you not to receive what your information, not to receive an answer, but so that they can, you know, feel better and just justify what they're doing. Um, and those people are really annoying and they come around every so often, right? So th those people certainly exist in magic and they exist in every field. I think it, particularly in the United States, um, there's less a deference to expertise. Um, and there's a great Isaac Asimov quote to this effect. I believe it's Isaac Asimov that, you know, essentially says that, uh, you know, there's this mistaken belief in American culture that democracy means my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. All right. And that's, that's the, the phenomenon that's going on here. Um, that said, th I think there's a, uh, there's a higher degree of subjectivity to cooking than there is, and food than there is with magic. I don't know. If, I don't think it's that, but I, I think it's, you know, slightly higher, but not that much higher. Because ultimately, there are flavor combinations that, you know, a professional chef would probably stay away from that some people just like. Like cheese on right? fish. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a classical, like, no-no. Yeah. Some people, will they'll, they'll put shredded cheese on their fish tacos. They don't, they don't give a fuck. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, fish, good. You know, cheese, good. Put them together, together. yeah. Right? That's uh, and a no-no. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah see, seafood and cheese, like, a, you know, a classical French train or a French classical train chef will, you know, They'll, Turn their nose up at you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, um, you know, certain people just like their steak well done. You know, right? Or ketchup. Some people just it, you know, or they just like shoe leather. You know, you can't, you can't. You know, people like what they like to a certain extent. In magic, you know, if you're trying to win, if you're really trying to 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 win, there are certain things that you should be doing. Now, I'm of the opinion that our collective knowledge of Magic: The Gathering is very low that we have barely scratched the surface and we have a very superficial understanding even at the highest level. And that's why you still see a certain um, a significant difference between the real top players and the, those below them, though that gap has widened in the last, you know, 10, 20 can years. I, can I interject for like uh, two seconds? Sure. Okay, because um, I actually think there's a really good example of this and I'm going to toot someone's horn. Tom Ross is one of the best I've ever seen at this right here at like, at what's the word I'm looking for here? It just like, Going against what is established as good and being convinced that he, you know, he might know better or what he's doing might also be good because 
I'll say this. I, I still remember, uh, if, if you don't know at home, I grew up around Tom Ross, right? You know, we cut our teeth at the same PTQs growing up. I remember playing against him before he was Tom the Boss Ross, you know, before he had his real big breakouts, right? And I still remember the first time I kind of took notice of him. And I used to always make this joke. I got real lucky when I started playing competitive magic. I played with like seven of the eight best players in the state. Like everyone just happened to be in Baton Rouge. And then there was Tom Ross. He lived uh, a few hours away from us, but we'd always be the same tournaments, obviously, right? And I remember at the time I was, I, I, I've always been a worse player than him, but at this, at this time I was a significant worse player than him, but did not realize it yet, right? And I was just on the cusp of like getting good or however you want to say, you know, like getting to the point where like I yeah. could start winning tournaments and stuff, right? And um, it's kind of like what the chef is talking about here with my friends. If they told me something was true or like, you know, I was like, hey, like, why is this good? And they would tell me I would concede the point to them more often because they were better than me. You know, like these guys have been to like multiple pro tours, you know, done really well on a bunch of stuff. You know, they were very good. They were much better than me. And I still remember this very, very well that there was this the PTQ. I either like bombed out of it or couldn't play in it because I had won one already that, you know, anyway. So I'm at this event and I'm watching Tom just like churn through this tournament, right? You know, he's like XO, he's beating a bunch of my friends. And like one of them after the round, he lost, I was like, hey, so what happened? You like, you, you lost a Thomas round? He's like, oh, he got lucky. Oh, he got lucky. Or like, you know, he's, he had these bad cards in his deck and he like won anyway or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I got lucky. And I was like, okay. So the next round, I just went and watched Tom play, right? And he made multiple plays that I wouldn't have done. And then I realized like two or three turns later why I was wrong and why Tom was right and why it was just better, however you want to put it, right? Yeah. And in my mind, I was like, I don't think he's getting lucky. I just think he knows something we don't know or he gets something that we don't get. And so it's like you said, we're still scratching the surface. And like, I feel like Tom revolutionized a lot of the ways people play the game in certain ways, like the way that we view combat and aggressive decks. Like when you think of like heroic and like Invect and some of these decks that he pioneered, they were so much different than like conventional decks at the time. And you had to play them differently. Like I remember playing against those decks when it would be just, random Joe Shamo off the street and I would like have my way in that matchup where normally like it would also feel better because I'd be testing the matchup with Tom who plays it perfectly but it would just be yeah. easy when they didn't play at the you know the the and, the, and it led to a lot of people right. really underestimating the strength exactly. of that deck including myself uh, I remember the first couple of times he made yeah. some of these decks you know like I remember uh I went to one of the TCG invitationals right and I went up there and I played Tom Ross's Boss Sly deck. If anybody remembers that deck, the Boss Sly deck, right? And this is right before he like won multiple invitationals with this deck, right? This is this was the coming out party for the deck. He, he wasn't even at the tournament. I remember because I was out of town and I was looking for a deck in standard. It was standard and modern. And I, I messaged Tom, I was like, hey, do you have a good deck? And he goes, this deck's insane. I've been winning absurd amounts with it online. Uh, and I was like, hey, can I get a sideboard guide? And, you know, I was like willing to ship him the $3 or whatever, blah, blah, blah. The guy sends me like 17 pages, right? Like paragraphs on play draw for every every matchup imaginable, right? I play the deck a couple games and I'm like, yeah, lock it in. This, game, this deck's insane. I remember because at these TCG events, you used to have buys, right? And so like I have buys in the first few rounds and a bunch of the other like grinders and notable players come over and one of them's like, hey, do you want to play? And I'm like, yeah, let me play my standard deck against you because like I need some more reps so that I barely, I, like I'm coming in cold, right? I remember I'll go like Mountain of Crow and Crusader, and my opponent kind of like gives me this look. Right? I remember like all the SEG guys were there, like Harry Corvasi, CVM, like a bunch of the big names at the time, right? You know, a bunch of these guys, and they're all watching. And I remember like I untap and I'm like, all right, upkeep before I draw, like Titan Strength, my Crow and Crusader, make a token, scry. You know, like all these cards. And I still remember someone from the peanut gallery going, Yeah, nice draft deck, Tannen. You know, because I'm literally playing draft cards that weren't even that good in the format. You know, they're fine. Yeah. Right. 
And then once I beat that person like the seventh game in a row, very easily, right? I'll never forget this. And it's, it's some props to him. I, I just remember Harry Corvese was like very quiet while this was going on. And he was watching. And he had like the, the contemplative pose. And I'm talking about like the hand on chin, like looking down. And he looks at his buddy. And remember, we've already registered our decks. And he looks at his buddy and goes, I think we fucked up. <laughs> and I destroyed that tournament, by the way. I got very unlucky to 7-1 standard. It's kind of like how you felt at your invitationals the last couple of times, and you like got unlucky to 7-1 of mono black and the, and the mono white deck and stuff like that. So yeah. um, sorry to kind of derail your whole thing, but like it, was, it just seemed like a very poignant time to have that kind of conversation because this, this fits so well. Yeah, and that's what I think what differentiates some of the people that are really at the top of our game is they have some fundamental understanding that the rest of us don't have. And they're doing things regularly that we're not doing to get those extra percentage points. And we just haven't had somebody come along and really be able to quantify exactly what that is. And I'm sure there's also like some conventional wisdom that we have right now that is wrong. You know, you know, professional sports had lots of conventional wisdom that was wrong for many years. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, uh, I mean, a lot of people have been saying this for a few years now, but you're starting to see it that like card advantage is definitely at like probably an all time low. Or one of its like lowest points ever, and imagining we're like you used to just be the card advantage would win you the game. Yeah, I, I think it's it's less card. We're just understanding card advantage's relationship with other axes of interaction. Right. That's very And way it's to put hard it. to yeah. So it's just the it's hard to trade too much tempo to gain card advantage. Mm -hmm. You need to be gaining card advantage in tempo positive ways. Yeah. So things like you know, Chemist's Insight saw some play, but ultimately wasn't that good as the format got more powerful. Whereas Hydroid Crisis was a staple the entire time because that puts something on the battlefield, protects, you know, bolsters your left a little bit and generates card advantage. So it's just the ways that we've started generating card advantage are different. And it's because, uh, one, it's because the cards have become more balanced. You know, part of the reason that straight card advantage was broke, was really good in the nineties is because the threats were so bad that you could reasonably just counter everything your opponent played. All your other cards draw a bunch of cards. Yeah. Yeah, like the the cards just don't allow for that kind of strategy right now. People can get under you. You know, there are cards that interact don't you know, that counter spells don't interact with. You know, and things like that. Yeah, so, counter spelling spells and then drawing cards doesn't beat a neuro. Like they'll yeah. just they'll just keep casting the neuro over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so our our understanding of magic was in part restricted by the fact that for the first five or ten years of the game, the cards were designed in a very unbalanced way. Mm -hmm. So we had to adjust what we understood about magic as the cards got more balanced. And, you know, even to this day, you know, there are some things that make you realize that we, how little we know. I think the, the biggest thing for me is mulliganing. Mm -hmm. there, are play, there are really great high-level players that mulligan a lot. And there are really great high-level players that don't mulligan, you know, hardly at all. Yeah. And how can you have people that are so far on, on different ends of the spectrum and both be successful? They're both probably and, right. Well, I, I don't know if they're both necessarily right, but they're not wrong they're, about that. You know, I think they're the key that I think a lot of people don't get with magic is you have to play consistent or uh, consistently, yeah. and by by that I mean like your plays have to be consistent with each other. You can't hold back one turn and then you know push forward another turn and keep zigzagging most of the time. Right, this is not a universal declaration, but I'm sure when, when Seth keeps a lot of loose hands, <laughs> he's probably making some plays exactly differently than, too, than those of us, you know, uh, or maybe building his decks a little bit differently, right? 
you know, I, and I haven't, you know, sat down and really looked to figure this out, but I'm sure there was like something different that he's doing. Whereas, you know, Juza, who is sort of the canonical example of somebody who mulligans all the time, is probably doing something else differently to like to compensate for that. And maybe there's a platonic ideal of exactly how much you should mulligan and what you should do in those scenarios. But the thing is, and this is another thing that people I don't think understand about magic, is people like individual players are not the platonic ideal of a magic player. We have strengths. We have weaknesses. Yeah. We have types of games that we're more likely to play well and types of games that we're more likely to make mistakes in and, you know, st- strategies that we're best in, best at implementing. And I think for many years, we had this mistaken idea that every single magic player should aim to try to widen the range as much as possible and, you know, be able to play every deck at a high, very proficient level. And if you're not doing that, then you're screwing up. And I think that was misguided. And there's been somewhat of a pushback more recently against that idea. And I'm not saying that every single person has to be a, a complete specialist and you only play one style of deck all the time. But I'm saying that you don't have to have the widest range. And if you have, you know, you, you know, if, if your range is too narrow, then there's going to be some metagames that you're not going to be able to succeed in because that your your range doesn't hit in that metagame. And if your range is too wide, you're probably never going to have decks that you're just really awesome with. And that's a huge advantage, right? To have going into a tournament so there's a again a balance to be struck and you need to find the right balance and some players are naturally going to have wider ranges than others that's fine uh right but and if your range is too low you should work to widen it a little bit but it doesn't need to be the, the only thing that you're working on and it's not a huge weakness you just need to learn how to play within your strengths and weaknesses mm-hmm. and i think players should be a little bit more willing to do that um so t- just a to finish up Chef Petra's question, um, with these people that are, you know, coming at you and, you know, basically trying to talk to you like you're a peer, uh, to me, they're, you know, the, the onus is on you into how you want to handle these kinds of interactions. You can be really, really snarky and dismissive with these people, and they're probably not going to like you very much. And sometimes I am snarky and dismissive with these people because I just can't be bothered to give a shit. You know, so, we so, all have those days. Sometimes? i'm very diplomatic with people too i'm I'm aware yeah you put it with me i mean you have anyway (laughs) yeah so the the question is just like you know ultimately for you like you know we we see your food yeah um you know we haven't tasted it but i'm willing to bet you're a pretty good chef right and you should be confident in your abilities and you can just let people be idiots right you know, you say, you know, don't put, you know, cheese on your fish. And they're like, oh, but I like cheese on my fish. Or like, I think that's actually r- really good. And you just go, okay, buddy. And I'm like, you, you know, or whatever the, the fuck they're doing. I don't know. Yeah, just you know, as an example. Putting yeah. pineapple on pizza or yeah. uh, other stupid bullshit. But, you know, the I think what, the other thing that you can do here is you, you can sort of develop a sense over time of which people are going to respond more constructively to your criticism and which aren't and, you know, take it on a case by case basis. And you're never going to be a hundred percent. Sometimes you're going to miss the opportunity to educate someone who would have appreciated it. And sometimes you're going to come off as snarky and uh, pedantic uh, and uh, pretentious to somebody who doesn't appreciate it. And I'm like, you know, we're not all going to bat a thousand. You have your good days and you have your bad days, but, um, you know, the, the thing that this tells me is that, like, you're one of those people that is respectful of other people's expertise, and that's a good thing. You know, that isn't to say we need to be blindly, you know, following every person that has, you know, a PhD next to their name or whatever, because God knows there are some unscrupulous, you know, scientists and people in any field that are willing to, you know, 
hawk random shit like Dr. Oz, even though, you know, you were a talented heart surgeon or pediatric surgeon. I can't, some sort of surgeon, I think he was. And he was like really good. But now he's just a fucking shill because that makes money. And, you know, you can call those people out. You know, Jordan Peterson, in- intelligent person, probably had some good ideas about psych. Maybe. I don't really know. But, you know, heinous asshole that, you know, supports a lot of terrible things. So, <laughs> you know, you don't listen to him anymore. So, you know, that they're but in, in you know general cases like this like a lot of people they're just not they don't want to be helped so let them go on in their ignorance and you just kind of don't let it bother you uh kind of going back to some of your points real quick when you're talking about the mulligans and some people take too many some people take too few your two examples were exactly who i thought of for each one so, yeah yeah and then um you're like sometimes we can't put a, a tangible quantifiable thing on what makes you know what this person does better but something they do is different or whatever i will say this real quick that Tom is the best player I have ever seen at attacking while losing. I have never seen yeah. anyone win as many games or they were losing as Tom Ross. I guess you, you're actually very high up on my list as well. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I mean, at the risk of tooting my own horn, I, I agree. I think that's something I'm good at. I think Brennan's very good at it. I think I'm way, way lower on the list than you two. Yeah. The, uh, and, and you know, the, those things that that's the kind of games that, that I'm, I'm good at playing and so sometimes, you know, I try to play those games. Maybe it, maybe that means I get a little bit more aggressive in those spots than I should or than other people do. But it, it doesn't really come down to a should or, a, you know, a should question, right? Or at least that question is being asked of specifically me. Like, should I be making this play? You know, maybe that's a play that I should be making, but somebody else shouldn't be. So there's this idea that, you know, every turn there is the 100% objectively best play. And that is just not true when you're dealing with people, right? Because we all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have blind spots. We all have, you know, uh, other things, other attributes. And we need to be catering what our play styles to those things. And for years, I thought that people would talk about that. And it was generally just used as an excuse to do what they want to do and not really examine it. So you, you do have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Because sometimes you, that can be an excuse. It can be a crutch that you lean on. And like, yeah, I'm playing this card because I think it fits my play style. It's like, well, uh, what do you mean by that? It, really, it's just a worse card than, you know, X, Y. And there's pretty clear reasons why. Um, and, and so you got to be like, in order to do this well, you have to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. That's really, really important. Um, but there is room to play differently. You know, not all of us have to be robots where we're just crunching 7 million different play lines like a computer and saying this one is a 68.2% probability to win and this one is a 68.1% probability to win. So I'm going to take that one because, you know, we also have to take into account our opponent. You know, what kinds of games is my opponent comfortable playing? Which kind of games are they uncomfortable playing? You know, if you play against somebody enough, you you can hopefully get an idea of that. And, you know, I think we should be taking a little bit more um, of our cues from, you know, like, the chess community where like when, you know, granted that they get to sort of sit there and prepare for an individual opponent a lot, especially, you know, most of my interaction with chess is like watching the world championships where that that's the case. So like, it's a small tournament, you know, you play against like nine different people. And so you really have an idea of how they like to play and you spend sort of months, you know, studying their games. Where do they make their mistakes? Where, where, where are their weaknesses? You can't do that as often with in magic and often it's more about knowing the deck's weaknesses versus you know the player's weaknesses but that is definitely a thing and if the you know if decks have certain weaknesses that you really you know play into your strengths then yeah le- lean into that 
But if deck's weaknesses play into your own weaknesses, then maybe you should try to find a different way of, of approaching the matchup. You know, a different way that's not that, you know, most people would scoff at and be like, well, why aren't you doing this? Like, this is obviously what, how, how to play this matchup. Uh, you know, maybe you specifically should be looking at a, at a different way to do that. All right. So we'll move on to the uh, the second part of this question, because it's not really a question. It's more of like, when is something going to happen? Well, okay. When are we getting the full food episode? I need the full Pioneer podcast food episode. I really like hearing and talking about magic players, food likes and dislikes, what we eat during tournament play, and what causes us to be food elitist, even though we're just playing a card game. I'm totally down to do a food episode. By the way, there was a fork knife emoji after that. Just you know why? I asked him for a food questionnaire that is later down in this in this thread. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, so I figured we would just skip down and do the food. All right, questionnaire so I, I guess we could do that. Food, food, food questionnaire. We'll we'll move to that. All right. Most most expensive dish bought. Um, does this have to be for ourselves? I want to know, or can it be for? I assume so. Uh, do you have an answer? Because I'm trying to think of mine. I don't have a specific one, but it's one of a handful that are all in the same vein. Okay. So uh, a couple times. Uh, so this requires some backstory. So, but when I was living in Connecticut and first started, you know, getting into the grind in the 2010s, um, I, and I first started flying to tournaments, I would often save money by taking a train from central Connecticut into New York City and fly to and from New York City because the train was like 55 bucks round trip. And I could often save, well, more than that by, you know, flying out of New York instead of Hartford. And th- that there was an added benefit where I had several friends who lived in Manhattan at the time, uh, and I would be able to visit them. So I'd usually come down like the day before I left, you know, and hang out with them for a night. And then I would come back and stay that with them for a night and uh, another night and then leave the next day and go back home. Uh, and I remember I did this for the invitational in season one in Atlanta in 2013 that I ended up making the top four of. It was my first Envy top eight. And when I came back, my friends were like, we have to go out and celebrate. We're going to go to a really nice New York steakhouse well before I was vegetarian. And the, I think I the steak I bought was $62 at Sparks. And I honestly am struggling to remember which one I got because we, we did this a couple times and I mixed it up. I actually like sirloin quite a bit. I know like the, the trendy cut of steak to say is ribeye that's like the chef cut because it, it's a little bit fattier uh and the the you know the flavor is, is kind of unique and nice and it's sort of not trendy to say you like filet mignon which is way less fatty and a little bit less flavorful but just super tender um but i actually i just like the flavor of sirloin quite a bit i like the sizing Even it's a cheaper cut i like the sizing of the fillets as well it's like a little bit it's not as giant fucking yeah, hunk of flies, meat you know like yeah flies a little bit smaller and, you know i'm a little bit of a smaller guy so like you know i and i like the whole meal i don't just want the main course you know what i mean i want like everything so for me fillets are often like even if i want a steak that's a that's a good amount for me yeah oh yeah because there's always like the the sides that you're getting you're, yeah. get, you're getting some potatoes you're getting some asparagus maybe yeah i think i think i'm good there if, if people want to know, I, I remember going to the Spark Steakhouse. I remember going to Palm 2. We never made, we talked about, but never made it out to Peter Luger's. Mm-hmm. They always have a, like a wait, I think. Yeah. I think. I think it's hard to get in there. And it's was, you know, it's in Brooklyn. So I, uh, I have a couple questions. D- d- does it count if I got the meal comped? Or does I, do I have to, because uh, it says bought. It says most expensive dish bought. Yeah, I, I, 
I mean, I would I would answer with both. I, th- okay. I think this is a good honorable mention. Uh, all the honorable mentions are meals with Jonathan Job and I in Las Vegas that we got ridiculous. I mean, like there was a meal at a steakhouse once where, um, you know, we 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 had the 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 full the full Monte. You know, what I'm talking about like everything you could, you could want, including the desserts. Uh, probably a top five steak I've ever gotten. Like with confidence, he ordered his steak blue there that's this kind of steakhouse you know what i mean like they don't fuck around yeah. right you could order a blue steak there um the wine that was ordered as well like probably more expensive than the entire meal um anyway um for for personal stuff i can't think of one in particular i definitely went to like one of the top 10 steakhouses when i was in orlando once and i remember it being like absurdly expensive but it was like me and a couple other guys were there for grand prix is probably where where i did that um I spent a couple weeks in Europe. I mentioned this early, really early on in the show about, you know, with some girl that I dated and we like, you were like, Hey, I need the story one day. We'll, we'll get to that. But I spent a few weeks in Europe with a girl and, uh, I ran up quite a tab while I was there. Like quite, I mean, I think I may have spent anywhere from five to 10 grand while I was there for the, for the two weeks. And, um, we, we had some meals that were on, on the expensive side, but I think it had a lot to do with like, we were in, Paris during a holiday or we were in London during a holiday, you know, and like, you know, stuff like that. So, um, and just a lot of meals I was in Vegas, man, I can't think of a specific one that like really, besides like losing games of, of, uh, losing credit card games. See, the thing is, I also just, I don't really remember how expensive meals were, you know, you know, I bought them at the time. I clearly, I thought, you know, I can afford this. This will be yeah, fine. There's different points of your life, too. There's points in my yeah. life where, like, if I spent a couple hundred dollars on a meal, I wouldn't think twice. And then, like, if I did it now, I'd just be like, what the fuck am I doing? I could feed myself for a month on that. Like, you know? Yeah, Or yeah. I'm being more fiscally responsible, you know? like. Yeah, and I've definitely had, the, had those times as well. I mean, yeah, when you're playing, like, when you're playing poker, we're notorious for, you know, blowing tons of money. But I've also never, I think outside of going to a steakhouse, it's hard to get a really like expensive entree or meal outside of a real like fine dining restaurant, yeah. right? Like if you sit down at, at most, you know, mid-sized restaurants, the most expensive thing in the menu is going to be like 30, 40 bucks. Yeah, like I haven't been to a, like a five-star restaurant or like a four, like we want to go, you know what I mean? Like I want to, you yeah, know, like I want to You mean a Michelin star restaurant. Yeah, I want to go to so one of these. I'm, one, two, I'm, or three. I'm going to go to one of the, you know, some of these sometime yeah, soon. Yeah, I would like to. You know, like I want to go to the French Laundry really bad. You know, like I've, I, I, has been multiple times to talk to me about it. And he's like, yeah, it's like, it's a, it's an actual like life-changing experience. You know, I'd, I'd love to do this. So I'm assuming that's going to be the answer. All right. Number two, best food you've had while playing Magic. Um, best city, easy easy enough, is Vegas for me, and then we'll get to more specific. What about you? What's your What's your best city for 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 food? Oh, best overall, city. overall. It doesn't have to be just one thing. Um, because there's certain cities have like certain things that are so good, but overall, nothing nothing beat Vegas for me. I think it's the best. I think it's the best city for food for food in the country. Yeah, it's definitely up there. I have not spent a ton of time in New York, so if, if you know. And there's some West Coast stuff that I probably haven't hit. The thing with me is I always want to say, like, this is the best food city relative to its size, mm-hmm. right? Like, I, It's hard to beat New York just because it's 8 million people, 10 million people, and a large city. There's just so much. There's so much there yeah. that, you know, so, like some part of it is going to be, some parts of it are going to be incredibly good. And then, you know, Vegas also a big city. I think Vegas is better relative to its size than New York yeah. just because it specifically has so much pound competition in yeah food and beverage yeah um i've really really liked columbus yeah the 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 what do you call it the next door the uh the market yeah the the north market but even things outside of the north market that i've had in columbus i've really liked 
Um, underrated. I, I've had a lot of really good food in Philadelphia. I, you know what? I was going to say the exact Again, same outside thing. Outside of Reading Terminal Market. I was going to say the exact same thing. Um, that little area that we would go to with me, you, and oh, Brennan. I mean, even outside of that. I mean, in actual Philadelphia. Yeah, that, the, food, the food was really good. There. Honestly, it was just... But even, yeah. I, I found that the last two years of me playing, right? Like, BCW Forward is where I really found myself, like, really enjoying the food that Heavy Magic. And I think it had to do a lot with the people that I was with. It would be, like, you, Brennan, G- eh, maybe not Jim Davis. Let's, let's not go too far with his obsession with cheese and pizza and, like, that's it. But I love you, I love yeah. you Jim, if you hear this. But Jim, Jim's palate is limited. Jim's, yeah, but you get saying it with, like... We like Jim here. His palate is limited. It, it, was, it, it would be, like, a group of us where you're the youngest person at, like, 30. So, like, we're going to real restaurants and, like, you know what? We're not being fiscally responsible but we're not being frugal either and like i want to enjoy my meal you know you want a good beer with your meal i want to really enjoy my meal and so like we would we'd often know where we're going like the day before you know like we we'd have like restaurants set up or like we'd be looking at like reviews and stuff like i remember some of the best indian food i've ever had was that little corner shop that we had in philadelphia out of nowhere you know we're just like oh yeah like we just wanted indian food we walked across the street from our hotel and i was like this might be the best uh you know butter chicken i've ever had in my life you know, kind of stuff, you know? So Yeah, and it can be sometimes those corner spots. I I have, like, a lot of ones that, like, kind of stand out, but there's never really one that stands out as just the single best. Yeah, it's, it's right? hard to make a I remember answer, but... that sausage place in Oakland was really good. See, I wasn't there. I um, actually really enjoyed the last time we were in Philly. Um, we went to that fusion place oh. instead of the vegetarian place you wanted to go to or whatever because it was the wait was too long. We went to that fusion yeah. place, and I had some kind of fusion shrimp and grits, and I was blown away with how good it was. Oh, the um, I I actually have, think I have one that might be above the rest uh, that I'm rem- remembering What's now. What's that? And this was actually a, a recommendation from Todd Anderson, and it, it is it was a, in downtown Charlotte, and it was this uh, this duck curry dish at a Thai restaurant. Oh, you're 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 barking uh, up was, my tree. It was unbelievable. Like Todd. Todd kept talking it up, basically telling everybody to order it. And I'll be honest, Todd's food recommendations are very hit or miss. So I am always wary when it comes to to Todd. He's a southern boy, so. But duck curry, you know, is something that I also really like or liked before. It's my favorite meal in the world. And so so I went with it. I was like, this is something that I would, you know, probably order anyway. And it was phenomenal. That and the other, another Todd Anderson recommendation actually is the Hermanaki wings at Alem Park outside of Indianapolis. Yeah, best wings I've ever. Those had. are unbe- Those are unbelievable. I remember their pizza being good too. If I remember right, I might be mixing I, it up. I don't like their pizza. Okay, maybe very I'm much. mixing up uh, a different. It, no, other other people do. Um, I I don't. Well, you're a Connecticut boy. Y'all are pizza snobs up there. Pizza is just good. Yeah. All right. Go go get pizza from the places in New Haven. It's unbelievably yeah, good. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely come up there one time. I need to meet Mama Ross and get some pizza. So, all right, number th- number three on here, uh, dish or food genre you would like to see made in a Pioneer deck? Easy one for me, uh, a tasting menu, because I want my deck to do everything. I like I like the decks that do a little bit of everything. You know what I mean? Like the the weird decks that just have. You know, I'm not just trying to cast Karn on three, or I'm not just trying to Blood Moon you. Know? I want to like play the game, and I want to try all the different stuff. So, easy stuff for me. Wow. You came up with such a good answer. Yeah, you, you're allowed to say that answer. I mean, I just this question is just so weird to me. Like, you know, what's a, what's a food? Th- this is not how I how I build. Hold decks on, what is a food? What's a food that you eat? You like the taste of it, and then it's got like aftertaste, or it comes back later, and you're like, it's still good. Because that's is it, Phoenix? <laughs> it's like Indian because you get like the burn later or something, you know? Like Indian, Indian is just the best cuisine of mm-hmm. food, just not close. Yeah, so good. 
And then like combo delicious. combo decks are anything with a high form of dairy for me. This is something I won't play or eat. So there you go. Um, <laughs> Stay very far. What away. do you eat before a tournament? Is number four. Honestly, my favorite things to eat before a tournament is breakfast of Ross, uh, because we usually yeah. go and get a good vegan or vegetarian meal before a tournament, and it powers me through the day. Well, and it, so this always you know just sort of depends on what city I'm in. Yeah. You know, some of them I know there's a good breakfast spot near me. And you know, we hit it up. Some of them, I'm lucky if we get a good hotel breakfast. Yeah. So, like, you know? the, the actual answer is something more along the lines of nothing too ridiculously filling. Like, I don't want something super heavy. Like, I try to stay away from, like, uh, biscuits and gravy. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. I fucking love biscuits and gravy, right? Especially, like, some sausage gravy. But, like, I try to stay away from something like that more along the lines of, like, you know, like a breakfast power bowl. Like, something that's got, like, greens in it and something that's, like, sustaining. Like, like I love, like, eggs and quinoa or something like that, you know, along those lines. You know, something that's yeah. going to sustain you're, you through you're the doing day. doing that, that whole thing. I honestly should eat better during tournaments than I do. But to me, the traveling and the food is part of what I enjoy of traveling about magic. So I don't eat nearly as well as I should. Uh, what I do try to do is give myself time to digest. So if I have, you know, most individual opens, I have two buys. And rather than, you know, get my food and walk into the and walk into the event site right after ready to play, I will usually wake up, you know, or a little bit earlier, get my breakfast right as everyone else is starting. So I finish with at least an hour right, or so right. afterwards. And that helps stop the crash. But if I'm in a city with some good food, I'm fucking eating it. Yeah. Like <laughs> Richmond. The, the little Pops Market on Grace has really great uh, biscuit sandwiches with these like, house-made biscuits. I'm getting some fucking yeah. egg and cheese. Yeah. When, you know, you know, a couple years ago, I would have gone down to the Jewish deli there and gotten corned beef hash. Love some corned beef hash. So I'm just eating what I want to eat. I will say my favorite breakfast on the SCG Tour is in Indianapolis. And there is this place that uh, Stu Summers first told me about called Cafe Patachu. Is this the one on the corner downtown that we walked to? Yeah, it's right behind fire. the Weston Hotel. Yeah, the place is pure fire. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, they have a what they call a Cuban breakfast. Oh, yeah. And it's rice and black beans and uh, avocado and two fried eggs. And they serve it with this sort of jalapeno spinach pesto i would say like it's sort of between a pesto and a salsa to be honest it was perfect um whatever it was yeah it is it's oh this breakfast is phenomenal and i get it every time i'm there i want to fly um, there just for that breakfast now the the breakfast sandwiches in at the cajun stand in the reading terminal market were also a highlight for me watch your mouth <laughs> watch your mouth i'm telling you they they came on a baguette so they were huge, and they cost like under $5. It was ridiculous. Uh, must have been four eggs on the thing. And they had andouille as a choice of breakfast meat, so you get andouille egg and cheese on a French baguette. It was fantastic. Thank you for pronouncing that correctly, too. I don't know if you could have the first time you ever saw that word. Like, you didn't know. If you hadn't heard that, you probably wouldn't. <laughs> andouille. And, 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 andouille sausage. And, andouille. Can I buy a vowel? <laughs> yeah. So... That's where I am. It just depends on the city. Yeah, it's like, it kind of, it, to me, it's important. And I know it's not just that breakfast is the most important meal. The thing is, you know, with your dietary restrictions and my dietary restrictions, it's harder for me to eat on site. It's very difficult for me to eat on site because usually it's like very dairy or just something I don't want to put in my body, right? And so I need to either bring yeah. something myself or I have to go somewhere where I have time and you don't normally have that. So for me, getting a good breakfast, big, big deal. Yeah. Um, and the, the real thing, I, the other thing I will say yeah. is breakfast for me almost always contains eggs. Yeah. Ross is pro egg. All right. Number five, what on-site food has been the best at a GPPT open 
or invitational or anything like that. Um, you want to go? Do you have a, an answer? I know. The, I know. The only time I've had a good salad at a convention center was in Las Vegas, and I remember the salad like it was like the the vegetables were fresh and crisp and flavorful, and it was just a good salad. Uh, so I remember that. Um, the Baltimore Convention Center has good food. Yeah. That's definitely up there. The ones that are um, attached to something else, like it's not just a convention center in the middle of nowhere. Like you're thinking of like, you know, Vegas, which usually in a hotel, you know, which in Vegas hotels well, are like. I'm thinking of the Las Vegas Convention Center that yeah. is uh, like in the middle, middle of the strip. Oh, the, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Or, that, no, it's at the north end of the strip between this strip and downtown. Okay, the, it, the it's one, like across from Circus Circus. Yeah, the one that's across from Circus, that's actually in a hotel. So your food's going to be better. Yeah, the, it's attached the to the The actual rest convention center where they hold the Grand Prix is out in the middle of fucking nowhere in like a bad part of town. and The food is not good. Are you talking about the Cashman yeah, Center? Yeah, that one's not great. That's further north. That's that's, by, that's, yeah, where, that's, the base, that's where the baseball field is. Well, I I did have a surprisingly good meal in that area though at a restaurant called Taco Minacho. Well, I mean, it's it's hard not to get good food, especially well, tacos. But. It was like open late, and that was basically the only reason we went because the name is so cheesy that we were like, "This is going to be just shit Mexican yeah. food," and it was actually like very good, and we were all so happy. And then we just laughed that we got good food at Taco Minacho. But that's a tangent. Just had to bring up Taco Minacho. For me, I, I'm not sure if I have a correct answer. I mean, a, a specific answer other than what you said. Just like stuff like that. Nothing's really super stood out besides the ones that have like actual real, real food. Like, you know, that's the thing for me in Baltimore. They have actual real food that you can get. Because like, I try to stay away from places like Chick-fil-A and Popeye's. I'm like, don't get me wrong. I need a chicken sandwich or Popeye's every now and then. That shit's good. I, I know it is, but I pay for it for the next like day or two. You know what I mean? Like, I do not feel all right, you know, but, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. Ross knows about this every now and then. You know what? I want to go get some Taco Bell, come home and drink some whiskey and eat some fucking nachos or eat some greasy ass food from Taco Bell because it's good. But I try to stay away from that stuff. So anything with real food is a big thing for me. All right. Number six, favorite food related magic card. Huh. I think we we're going to be a little stumped on this one, huh? So I, what's the the very portly demon from uh, Journey into Nyx? You're gonna, you're. Um, I'm I'm not gonna be healthier, buddy. The portly demon. Um, master of the feast. Yeah, for me, it's probably gonna be some Portal Three Kingdoms card or something like that because I love Asian food. So it's probably just gonna be something like that. Is there a card with someone eating dumplings? Because that'll probably be my favorite card. Probably not. There's gotta be a card with someone eating dumplings or something. That, I don't think that's uh, what they were going for when they made that set. All right, I'm going to ask you the next question because it's like yes or no. Do you remember Toberones at Top 8s? I do not. It's, it is Master of the Feast. Man. Dude, I fucking had Master it. Master of the Feast, sure. Yeah, one black, black, five, five flyer. At the beginning of your upkeep, each opponent draws a card. He, I, I don't know if it's... Well, it is food-related. It says Master of the Feast, but he, he's like... He's a very portly demon. Oh, cool. I remember I also really, yeah, yeah. I like the food token that has the really high-walled pie. I'm definitely on the pie better than cake. I like bacon a pie. Bacon to a pie or whatever. I like that card too. Very good. Uh, like probably some of the best and coolest flavor ever of a card doing what it's supposed to do. And then like the art and the name of it all just coming together to be perfect. So I think that's probably going to be my answer is bacon to a pie. Um, do you remember Toberones at Top 8s? Uh, been playing a long time apparently. I, do, I don't know what they're talking about. Do you? Yeah, I also have no idea what they're talking about. Did they used to give people Toberones when they Top 8 like PTQ? Uh, I remember pins. We used to always get pins and yeah. stuff. But I still have probably about 30. Yeah, they're somewhere at my parents' house. Or no, definitely not. Well, I, I would say I have 30 pins, but they also used to give out pins for IQ, right. so a lot of mine are from IQ. Uh, number 8, it's a hard-hitter question apparently. Why no SCG in Detroit? I need to make a Detroit food tour for the weekend. This is an underrated food city, by underrated the way. Underrated food city? 
probably dead last airport in the entire country. That airport is heinous. It is horrible. I I like the Detroit airport. You're probably the only human being alive, especially the SCG tour that likes the Detroit airport. Uh, well, I mean, I mean it, it, I, to me, it's like an above average airport. Do you, do you but, know what the most underrated airport in America is? The well, Miami airport. Uh, I don't have, I've been in it, but not, it's, like, not enough to have an idea It's humongous, and then it just has, like, tons of, like, Cuban and whatever inspired food, so the food's just, like, insane. Yeah. But the, the worst airports are, well, the, the worst airport is SFO. I hate SFO. LAX also sucks. LAX does suck, yeah. It's so um, crowded, too. Every t- I've never been there to have it not be, like, obscenely crowded. The Dallas airport isn't necessarily bad, but it's so big. One of my uh, one of my favorite restaurants in an airport is in the Dallas one, and I go every single time I'm there. Like I know where it is, like what you know, I wow. can walk right to it. It's a, it's a tapas place, and it is very good. I love tapas. I don't know if I've ever had a good sit down meal at an airport. This one this one's pretty good. This one's pretty good, and they have some really good vegetarian uh, options. I've had some really bad sit down. Oh well, yeah, of course. But, um, what other airports suck? I mean, LG, LGA is not very good. Uh, the Baton Rouge was not great, though, but it, it makes up for it in the fact that there's no one there ever. So every time I've flown in and out, I just get right. I just like I show up 15 minutes before my flight takes off. Just walk right up to it. It's great. You walk through security. They're like, have a good day. <laughs> like the Charlotte airport isn't great. I've been in through that one a lot. It's just like unnecessarily spread out. The for, one of the rocking chairs and everything that you have to go through all the time. That one's that one's fine. Yeah, it's just I just maybe I'm just bitter because I'm always flying from Roanoke to Charlotte, Charlotte to wherever I'm going, and so you you when you're Roan coming from the the tiny airport, you go into the E terminal and you got to walk all the way to like C or B to get your connection so i just have done so much walking through that airport and the food options in it are not no, good. you're definitely right the food options are not great have, did you ever know that I, i'm pretty pretty positive that was one they roasted me slightly on twitter like the the the, the charlotte airport's twitter got me good okay well maybe i like them a little bit more yeah now. i remember i like i was stuck there for like a five hour layover like going to an invitational or whatever once because like flying into roanoke is impossible or whatever and i and like when i landed i just tweeted hey is anybody in the the charlotte airport and charlotte airport's Twitter thing responded with, I'd sure hope so, or, or something along the lines, or, you know, along the lines, I don't remember exactly, I just remember everyone, like, LOLing, and, you know, you get owned and stuff, and it had a bunch of likes, so, I do like when, like, corporate stuff have, like, a funny person behind their Twitter thing, it's always great. Yeah. All right, uh, next question. But hold on, sorry, well, hold sorry, on. we gotta, we gotta be clear about how Detroit is underrated. One, this is actually another convention center that has surprisingly good food, the Kobo Center, it, that, that is actually way up there. I've only been to Detroit, I think, three times for tournaments. But the the Kobo Center is very good food. They have some uh, surprise. Detroit style pizza is pretty good. I actually like Detroit style pizza. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that's something to try. And they're in that Northern Great Lakes region, so you get a lot of uh, good uh, Northern European food, like German, in, in that area. You can definitely find in there. Um. So yeah, an underrated food city. Okay, definitely. All right, so uh, the next question has a specific question from you and for me. Uh, for me, it's who is your favorite Wheel of Time character and what deck would Matt play? So I think this is them. This is from BDJ, by yeah, the way. Yeah, from BDJ. Sorry, I think this is they're assuming that Matt is my favorite character, and you have assumed correctly. He is like actually one of the best characters in the show and has some of the best character development. This is a I show. Mean, uh, it's, it's becoming a show. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, on the book, uh, in the books. Yeah. Um, I actually really like the books just, uh, for clarification, just in case you want a little more out of this, I actually really liked, uh, the last three 
when um, Brandon Sanderson took over. I thought he did a very good job of mixing his own voice in with Robert Jordan's voice. Because uh, I don't know if you know this, right? it's like 13, 14 books long, Ross. They're extremely long, and uh, the writer died. Book- Define extremely long. Average is about 900 to 1,000 pages a piece. Okay, that's extremely yeah. long. Like, there's a few that are only, like, seven or 800 pages, and there's a few that are, like, 12 or something, you know? And there's, like, 30 of them? Like, 13, I think. Oh, 13, okay. The, it's, it's, there's, that's like, still, five... That's a lot of words. There's, like, 500 named characters or more. It's, it's told from, like, 75 different points of view or 100 different points of view or something like that, and some of the books, I think, technically go on at the same time. It's kind of, it's kind of, like... This sounds horrible. It's, it's a slog to get through it in the middle, but it's worth it. I gotta, t- I gotta tell you... After years of playing Magic, and as much as I enjoy Magic, I never want to get into anything with as high of a learning curve as Magic. So I, I, I gravitate towards simplicity in everything. I can get that. And I really appreciate any sort of game, TV show, any anything that I consume for entertainment to manage to achieve great depth while maintaining simplicity. That's what I value above everything everything else now mm-hmm. i just i'm i don't have the desire to read thirteen thousand words and have to re- remember 500 characters yeah it was difficult like there's definitely times where something happens and you kind of i would need to go on the internet and be like so what is this referencing to because you know it took a while because like yeah that would annoy me and i'm not I'm not even the kind of person that would sit there and read through that one book straight and, you know, do it as quickly as possible. To read one of those books would take me at least a year because I would be like, I'm reading multiple things at once. And, you know, when I want to read, you know, you know that, I'll read it. When I want to read something else, I'll work through that. It also, so, it also didn't help that I started reading very early on. I think I started reading when, like, the third or fourth book came out or maybe in, like, the, you know, the second one or whatever, which was, like, mid to late 90s. And so I had to wait for them to finish it, which was only, you know, finally finished a few years ago. And so, so you're a wheel of time hipster, is what you're trying to say. Same thing with uh, same thing with uh, Game of Thrones. I remember getting the first one when, and like waiting for the second one. But you know, the main store that I played in growing up playing Magic was also a bookstore. Like it had a book section, and so it had like the very. And it, I'm not talking like it wasn't Barnes and Noble. It just had a book section, and so it had like the very uh, popular stuff. And someone was like, "Oh, you'll, you'll like Wheel of Time. Oh, you'll like this." And I would I would read it. Um, but like, here's a perfect example. Something happens in like I think book two or three, where like one of the characters is given an envelope or something like that, right? And he either reads it or like doesn't read it. But like that that scene, it's like it's a you know the red herring thing. Like if if you talk about a shotgun on the mantle in like the first act of a book, it's called Chekhov's gun. Yeah, Chekhov's gun. Whatever. Um, you have to you have to refer you have to have it like mean something in the story. I saw a great tweet recently that described a Chekhov's breakfast. That if a breakfast is made in a you know TV show or a movie, the main character has to ignore it and just take two sips of coffee because they're in a hurry. Yeah, exactly, like, it happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. Like Chekhov's breakfast. That or um, I remember there's like there's sequences where like if the 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 leading lady is going to be involved in some kind of like you have to pick her out of a crowd or run her down or follow, you know she's going to get kidnapped or whatever. She's always wearing a brightly colored dress and no one else in the crowd is wearing anything of that same color, so you can see them through the crowd. It's like you know it makes for a better viewing experience. You know, you can follow. Yeah. Um, there's something along with the envelope. Like one of the main characters give an envelope from a character that dies or whatever. And then you don't know what that what it means until book like 12 or something. I can't remember exactly, but you know what I mean? You, it literally took like 20 years of real time for you to find out what was in the envelope or whatever. Yeah, this is not for And me. I was just like, I, and I remember the payoff being good, but I don't remember what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I don't remember what it is now at this point, but I remember being like, oh yeah, that happened. You know, like, it, you know, like whatever. So... 
Um, but yeah, Matt was the gambler of the group. So like, real quick. So the, the story centers around three kids. W- one of them is the most important, but they're only three. Yeah, it centers around these three people because they are the center of the universe. So like, the wheel of time literally is like time is a circle and everything comes back around, right? But they can affect things around them. Everyone knows time is a regular tetrahedron. Shut up. Anyway, so like they can affect things around them, and usually the world works in different ways when they're around than what it would normally do. And Matt could just like affect the luck of things. And they're each Are you, also... Are you sure these people aren't just unnaturally attractive? They're, they're, well, they're also reincarnations of earlier people because it, they're kind of like Neo from the like from uh, the Matrix where like this is actually the 47th iteration of Neo and like this one's different. That's literally like I'm, I'm kind of running the book for people, but like, you know, you find out that like they've done this before because like it centers around someone being the one. You know, he's like the chosen one. He is the dragon reborn or whatever. But then you're like, wait a minute, we've done this before, but like this one's different somehow or whatever you know what i mean it's kind of like almost like that kind of storyline but uh matt was the one that like he always did all the crazy shit like everybody else did like what they were supposed to or like you know like this or that and he was always like nah bro that ain't me and he'd like rebel against what was going on and like all this crazy shit always happened to him and i always liked him more he was the un- he was like the guy in early edition that also got the paper early and used it to win the lottery instead of gary he used it to save people he, he was like the han solo you know what I mean? He had like the coolest character arc and stuff and like blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's there's a lot of good payoffs for everybody else's characters, but some of them were boring. Anyway, for Ross. C- clearly, Tana didn't get my early edition reference. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. It's a it's a TV show from the late 90s definitely, that was on CBS. I didn't watch it. St- hold on. Starring Kyle Chandler. Okay. This is his first starring role, uh, at least on TV. Uh, I don't know if he did anything before then. You, you know who Kyle Chandler is? Remind me. He's uh, Coach Eric Taylor on Friday Night Lights. Right. Okay, yeah, I love that guy. Yeah. Yeah, so the, this was a he was in a show where he played a bar owner in Chicago who started getting the paper a day early. He would get tomorrow's oh, paper today cool. and he would go around trying to help people that you know because he would read about all this horrible shit that was going about to happen yeah. and he would run around you know trying to save everybody. And at one point he runs it like one episode he just finds a guy who also gets the paper a day early and that guy just like uses it to enrich himself. Yeah. <laughs> He's just a super selfish. Yeah. He's the Biff uh, Tannen of of the thing he like yeah. uses the sports almanac to bet on the sports. Yeah. That's a better reference. Yeah, but, sure. You sure. know, I have to make the esoteric one from the show I used to watch on Saturday nights when I was 10. Yeah. I mean, there's even like it even made me think of Chuck a little bit too that he got all this information put in his head and he like uses it, you know, like, anyway. Um yeah. He's kind of forced to, but... Yeah, exactly. It's a similar situation. All right. But also from BDJ, for Ross, how will the public education system fail my children, and how can I mitigate this? This was also asked before kids went back to school, kind of giving the uh, time thing. Um, So... Here's what you have to understand about public education I'm gonna, in the I'm gonna United sit States. Back, I'm going to sit back and like relax for a little while because I'm assuming this is going to take a bit. Its origins are in the 19th century. You know, Before then, most kids weren't schooled you know, m- much at all. Uh, and there, you know, certainly not for more than a few years and beyond basic things. And then they start, you know, started working. And we started getting a push for... Uh, public education that was more comprehensive in like the mid 19th century, maybe a little earlier. And the impetus for this is the fact that the industrial revolution created a need for a competent workforce and an an industrial workforce, a real proletariat. So the, that requires some modicum of education, but the, they never want people who are too educated. They want you to be just educated enough 
for their own purposes. So the people who've established our public education system did so in a way that would mimic industrial job life. So it's very regimented. You, you know, you would advance through, you do the, the, the classwork that you need to do. You have a boss essentially in the teacher or instructor. And you're, you know, part of the, you know, a huge part of the education system is teaching you to keep your head down and do your work and not be disruptive and, you know, not be creative if that creativity is disruptive and also to just do things the way we tell you to do them and not try to think outside the box. So we have a, uh, an education system that is, was built for that industrial world and for the purposes of the people who owned that world. Now we have a system that is still essentially owned by those uh, powerful capitalists, but we have a world where the industry has left the United States and we have an education system that has failed to adapt to that. And now we actually need more people that are a little bit more creative. We need to, you know, for at least for their purposes. And uh, so the public education system actually fails them to a degree. Now, it still accomplishes its goal in, you know, keeping people in line, which is very important here. So really, the, the there's no incentive for the education system to get rid of that. And that's what's really failing your kids because it treats, treats every single child like an automaton. And it actually doesn't do a good job of caring for people that are at any significant end of the spectrum in any way. So, you know, we have special education classes and special needs classes for kids that need them, but they really don't do a good job of helping those kids get to a place where, you know, they can live rich, fulfilling lives. It's more a place where they can just stash them away so they don't disrupt other kids. And we also don't do a good job of taking care of kids at the other end of the spectrum that could be pushed forward a little bit faster and instead are, you know, are incredibly bored and that they tend to act out as well. But then that is viewed as them being unruly and getting out of line and being disruptive and you need to quell that. Uh, so, you know, it's really sort of designed for the, the most average kid possible. It doesn't even really help them because all it does is fit them into the box that they want to fit you into. So really... Unless you are homeschooling your child, which very few people have the ability to do, you have to be prepared for this, that it's going to happen. And, you know, if you're going to take a very active role in your child's education, which hopefully you will, um, I would suggest, you know, you, you have to be active enough that you really understand what's going on in the, in the classroom and in the school, and you need to be willing to butt heads with the administration and, you know, go to bat for your kid when they're, you know, being punished for, you know, doing something that they really shouldn't be punished for. And you also have to be, you know, you know, well versed in these issues yourself to be able to recognize that, you know, maybe your, uh, your, your, you know, whatever issue your, your child is having can be solved in a constructive way. There's actually a good TED talk about this from a guy who, who, uh, who works in education reform. It's a really famous TED Talk from years ago by this British guy. I can't remember his name. But he tells this anecdote of, you know, a story of this little girl who the, the was having issues in her classroom because she wouldn't sit still, right? And they're all like, you know, so they're like, how is she going to learn? She just like doesn't listen. She's unruly. And the, the guy looks is like, you know, tells her, well, you know, she's not a problem. She's a dancer. 
Like get her into classes that like, you know, she, clearly she wants to be moving. So let her move in constructive ways. And now she's like, you know, a choreographer. That's what her profession is. You know, she loved it and you know, danced all her life. So, you know, you know, there are, when you try to fit a kid into a specific box, which is what our education system tries to do, everything that is outside of that box is going to be viewed as a negative. But what you should be trying to do is take all the evidence at hand, look at, you know, the way your child's behaving and what, and try to find ways to, put them in situations where what they're doing is going to be a positive instead of trying to fix the thing they're doing and mold them into this shape, you know, put them in the box that fits them instead of a rectangular box. Maybe they need a circular box, you know, to fit the metaphor or whatever, you know? So that's the thing that, that, you know, if I were a parent, I would be trying to do. Um, And, you know, that's a hard thing to do. So good luck. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think they made it more specific with like COVID, but and stuff like that. Like what's going? Oh, like what's? I mean, like they're gonna put people at risk in order to keep the gears of the economy running. My favorite. My favorite is that some states are making the kids move every twelve minutes or fourteen minutes or whatever. Because the only reason you need kids in school is because the school functions as a daycare, so parents can work. And if parents can't work, then you know they lose profits. So. That's all the, the motivating force here is the connection between the education system and the and the economic system. You know, the, really, it, the, they don't much care about really teaching your kid beyond giving them the basic skills to function in a normal job. And they don't even do that very well anymore um, because uh, there's, you know, our, our job system is really kind of fucked. That said, I still think personally that there's a... a significant value to having a liberal education i i hate this idea that education should be molded to you know uh job training right i think i see a lot of people on social media that's like why don't they teach us you know to do our taxes and to get a mortgage and all these like basic things like are you telling me that you can't fucking google this shit and figure it out i mean ta- taxes are, are a little bit more complicated although if you're just working you know a normal wage job they're not that complicated you know my taxes involve filing four different forms you know, and being a, a business that I'm the sole pr- pr- proprietor of. And, you know, I figured it out. Uh, so, um, which sounds kind of high and mighty, but ultimately, like, un- unless you're actually like operating a business, if you're literally just collecting a wage and supporting yourself that way, your taxes are really simple. Uh, and it, it doesn't take much to file them. And so like all these things, one, like, you know, there's value to the liberal education and things that people think are useless. And I'll get into that. But two, you also have to understand that what is relevant at the time you're being taught it is often not relevant 20 years later. You know, if we had had a lot of thing, a lot of, uh, you know, training to that effect when I was young, it would have been irrelevant because we transitioned to a digital age. When I was a kid, when we went to the school library for the first time, we got taught how to use a card catalog. Yeah. The Dewey um, Decimal System. Yeah. If, if I if I called Anderson LeClaire right now, who is like 22, 23, I'm not even sure he would know what a card catalog is. Yeah, he probably wouldn't. You know, like I remember at like B, I remember when computer labs got put in our school, and, and you know, I don't think we're going to see as drastic of a change as you know the internet and and personal computers um, in the next you know 20 years. But society is always going to change, so. What you do, what you have to do is be able to teach the skills that are necessary to adapt to changing societies. And those skills come from having a liberal education. You know, they come from being able to think critically. They come from being able to evaluate source material and decide what's reliable and what's unreliable. 
that's then you know that's a skill that that well that's a skill that should be taught but once again we have a system that is incentivized to not teach you how to do that correctly because they certainly don't want you to question what the united states does so that that's another problem is that the education system is linked with our economic system with our political system and with our prison system and it is acts in support of all of those things so it's never going to really truly in the spirit of a free liberal education break those things down in the way they are so you also have to understand the role that the education system plays and be able to counteract that as best you can um you know for your child so they don't get indoctrinated all right. Uh, next comment was from Lee McLeod again. He said, Tana Grace likes Wheel of Time, saying it so. I'm sorry, Lee. I do. I will say this. I don't think the TV show will be good unless they do a very good job of condensing it because it's not like um, Game of Thrones where it was more condensed, shorter, to the point. And Game of Thrones was just like immensely well done on the big screen. Even if you do this in well done on the big screen, like or silver screen or small screen, whatever the hell you want to call it. I don't think it's going to translate well because you're going to be like, what's going on? Why is this so slow? So I think they're going to have to like cut out massive amounts of the show and stuff like that. So uh, that was the chef question. All right. Uh, Cody Abzan Battle Priest asked, what's the best way for me to play Archpriest of Iona? Um, which one is that one? I don't know. Is this one of the new cards? So this is the one that the, I like. Yeah, it's, it's white for, it's the one drop, the one drop party cleric. So white for a one, two human cleric or for a star two, sorry. Um, the party it's a one two just by itself. Uh, when its power is equal to the number of uh, creatures in your party, and if at the beginning of combat on your turn, if your party is full, you target creature you control gets plus one plus one and flying until end of turn. I think the best way to play it is in a human shell where they have the other, um, the other creature types. But the problem I have with this card is like it's going to be hard to ever be consistent with your party being big enough. But I do think this is the one that's going to be good. If any of them are. Yeah, it's so easy to just make a one mana two two. Yeah. That the card is good on rate. And I think most of the play it sees is just gonna be in decks that aren't concerned with maxing it out and just play it as a consistent two two with some potential above there. Now you do want to have that potential, but you don't want to go too far to try to create it. Yeah, I want to do that with like humans that have the type in like Folly as a lieutenant. Something along those and lines. It, but but you need like you're gonna want a few warriors. Is Reflector Mage a wizard? I think it is, yes. I think Reflector yeah. Mage is a wizard, and there's like a few other humans that are relevant. Plus, you can just play the three two, you know that's that's everything. Yeah, I don't want to play that card. So I don't that to me is too much of a concession. You're just playing a two mana three two. Yeah, Reflector Mage is a human wizard. You know, I would figure out. So it, it's already a cleric. So with it, you don't have to worry about clerics. I would have one other creature type that I'm aiming to consistently get because I want it to be a one mana two two. Probably warrior. Um, I think that's probably going to be the easiest one to get, though I haven't looked into it. And I would dabble in the other two with only the only really powerful cards. So something like Reflector Mage, that's a great wizard to have. You know, if, if there's some rogue that, that you can have, sure, great. But don't try too hard to get it as a 1-mana 3-2 or 4-2. Uh, you know, when it happens, it'll be awesome. You want it to happen some small percent of the time. But treat it as more of like a 1-mana 2-2 with upside. Okay, I can see that. Um, all right. Uh, what is some, this is from Brent Wagner, our editor. Uh, what is something popular now that annoys you? I think for me, uh, one thing that gets on my nerves is the constant, like new trendy words. Cause I have no fucking clue. What any <laughs> of them, like, like yeet. And, uh, what's another one? Uh, you, you know what I'm talking about? Like words like yeet. There's another one recently. I just blanked on. Um, but like, I don't 
on like yeah old man st- yells at cloud i get it like i'm a boomer like whatever i just i don't know what they mean and no one can give you a definition of what this word means and then people just start using it i'm like okay, yeah okay like Th- those things you know that's just a fact of life that you got to get used to so they don't re- they don't annoy me that much though there are specific ones that get to me the one and for specific reasons the one that really does is oh is actually okay boomer this whole idea of boomer being an insult I actually think is insidious because it uh, creates a false notion that the issue at hand is one of age and generation as opposed to being one of class. Uh, so, you know, the there's a, 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 a divided, you know, working class is beneficial to the ruling class. And if we have it in our head that it's the old people that are the problem, and once they're all you know dead and gone, then things will get better, then we're not motivated to actually work for real sustainable change. And that's just not going to happen. There's plenty of you know rich uh, Gen Xers and millennials that will are perfectly glad to take the reins from the old ruling class. And there's also plenty of you know poor working class boomers who are struggling right now on fixed incomes that we need to be aligned with. And I understand like it's a joke. So, you know, I'm never going to jump down people's throat about it, but I don't like widespread language that inherently reinforces this false notion of how our society is structured. Uh, Another thing for me, uh, shaking hands. I I don't want to shake hands like ever again now. And I I don't think we will. I think think that's going to go the way of the dodo. Um, You know, it'll be somebody will somebody famous will do something weird and it'll get picked up right yeah that's how this always happens you know we, we were white at, or women were brides were white at weddings because of queen victoria um right you know it's always some just somebody famous that, that people follow so, so some influencer on instagram or whatever will do something that you know and then everybody else just out of inertia some person will that will wonder why they're actually famous and i i will have no idea yeah maybe influencers also get get on my nerves because i have no idea like why they're maybe it'll just be fist bumping maybe it'll just be you know elbows i don't know i've been, doing the, I've been doing the elbow thing all right but also <laughs> that doesn't fit the question tannin because handshaking is very unpopular now well okay sure what else is popular now that annoys me um, There's got to be a long list, Ross. If you had more time um, to think about this, maybe. Well, like it's you know po- popular now, as opposed to like, I don't I don't want to come up with something that's just sort of generically popular. Um, and a lot the thing that now is I'm sure there's a lot of things that would annoy me if I was more aware of them. Yeah. You know, if I watched every popular TV show, I'm sure there's ten that would I just be like, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> but I just don't watch them. Yeah. So I, I I do a good job of just ignoring the things that I know are likely to annoy me. And consuming the things that are less likely to annoy me. Yeah, some people wonder why I ignore you more. Anyway, uh, what was the next question? Uh, what were you really into when you were a kid? I know one thing that I was really into when I was in a kid that I'm not now is I used to be like pretty artistic. I used to draw a lot. And I was actually like pretty good for a while. I need to find some of my old drawings and everybody. I used to sketch a lot. And I was way more into reading when I was a kid than I am now, like when I was younger. Just because like I feel like I probably don't have the time that I, you know to fill in. Because like, you know, when you're like, 13 like what do you really you know what i mean like i didn't do my homework what else do i have to do you know so those things i'm just starting to get back into video games i was really into video games when i was a kid wasn't really now yeah i mean i i i don't know if there were ever a thing that i was like super obsessed with right that like i was the kind of kid that you know 
it seemed like every month I was into a different thing and I always wanted to try everything a little bit. Um, not when it came to food, but, uh, when I, I know when I was really young, I was really into Power Rangers. That was my after school show. I liked, I liked Power Rangers too. Yeah. Red Ranger, baby, for, for life. Uh, the Power Ranger movie. Dude, oh, I still yeah. have it on VHS. I need to rewatch that stuff. Oh, everyone, everyone, everyone in our age demographics, first crush was the Pink Power Ranger. I mean, everyone. Kimberly. Kimberly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. All right. Got to get your, got to get your Power Rangers trivia up. It was Kimberly, Trini, Zach, Billy, and Jordan. Yeah. All right. So, could we go to the next one, or do you want to keep flexing your Power no, Rangers? I'm good there. Stuff? All right. Uh, who had the biggest impact on you as a person, uh, on the person you have become? So. I don't know how I'm going to come off when I say this, but I think the, the person with the biggest impact on, on me is me. Um, I didn't, haven't always had like the best relationship with my family. Uh, you know, like I didn't really know my dad. My mom was really busy growing up. Nothing wrong with that. You know, like she was a good mother and like she probably had the, the biggest impact. But other than that, like, I don't know, I was very like self retrospective growing up. You know, I would see what other people would do and how they acted and like what they did. And I would more think about like, who I wanted to be and be like, I don't want to be that person or I don't want to be like that person. You know what I mean? Like I didn't have a role model growing up. Does that make sense? You get what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. And so like, I know that maybe comes off as like being very much an ass saying that, but I do think that the answer for me is actually me. Uh, The answer for me is something that I've, an answer that I've sort of slowly come to over, you know, maybe the last five years is how much I am like my dad. And that, also, how much like my dad has affected me, which is you know a little bit strange when you understand that uh, my my mom was certainly you know more present throughout my childhood. My dad worked third shift, you know, which means he had to sleep during the day, and you know my my mom was a stay at home mom until I was ten and in the sixth grade. So like she was always around and always there, and certainly had a, had a major impact. Um, but you know, I'm very, I think I am very much just like my dad, um, without even really trying to be like him. Um, but also I just the uh, sort of little things of being around him where, um, you know, he, uh, he, because he worked third shift, I sort of got to see the, 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 what word do I want to use? I got to see just sort of some of the ugliness of, you know, working a blue collar job for a long time. And it's not, you know, it, it just, it made me see some of the, uh, you know, maladaptive aspects of the way our system works well before I was radicalized. So I actually think that had an impact on who I am now considerably because it sort of, primed me for accepting that and, and uh, you know, overcoming the founding mythos of the American dream. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really funny. I think while I don't consider myself radicalized to the level that you are, I do consider myself over the last few years, like radicalized, however you want to, you, you want to say it. Yeah. And I kind of mentioned it. My, I think my brother has started to notice in the last year or two because of the conversations that we have and like the responses that I'll have to things that he says. And like a lot of my close friends are like somewhat starting to notice. And like my, my mother hasn't yet. And I think she doesn't want to notice, but she'll like, you know, it does come out at times because you, you, okay. I'm not going to name any names or say anything specific, but you can assume 
what the overprevailing thoughts and actions are in the area that I'm in and, and what the stereotype would be. The political climate. Let's just let's, let's put it this way. I am very much of the minority where I live with the way that I think and the way that yes. I act and stuff. And so I am very conscious of that. And I'm not, I don't, I don't know how far I want to go here, but like what I want to say, don't say, but at the same time, I do think it's funny when people talk to me in ways to where it's very obvious that they don't know who I am and what my beliefs are when it comes into this realm. You know what I mean? Like, it's obvious that like you have not heard me speak on any of these subjects or have not fact-checked who I am as a person in the last few years because of the way that like you say something and giggle and like give me the you know the elbow nudge you know that you know that like that look you know what I'm talking about the hurt the hearty har har thing the buddy buddy like you agree with me right I'm just like no I could not be further from agreeing with you you know kind of thing and it is funny to kind of have that here and in in you know picking my battles and stuff with that because like honestly you do you you do have to pick your battles and stuff with it here and stuff. So it's it's very interesting to me to hear other people talk about that and you know talk about their parents and stuff because and my my dad is not you know politically very yeah very far to my right and I have some theories as to how that happened because I don't think that was necessarily oh, true. Sorry, continue uh, earlier in his life though I didn't know but and, you know it's my, my he's still a, a compassionate individual one of my favorite you know just sort of memories of him was when I, I came home once and there was snow on the ground. It's, you know, Connecticut winter. And I saw our Christmas tree stand uh, turned upside down because he, he took our stand and bolted it to some plywood, uh, which both, you know, uh, I, I think it was mainly there. So it collected the needles more easily, sort of functioned like a skirt. Right. Um, but it was turned upside down and plopped on top of the snow. And there was, you know, what looked like, you know, sort of dried corn sitting on the, on the thing. And I was like, why the fuck is that there? And, you know, I go inside and I ask, what the hell is, is going on? He's a, and he just laid it out for, for a deer, which may be ecologically bad. I don't know. I know, like, I, I don't know. There's a lot of, like, population control that goes into that. But just the idea that he wants to, like, feed stray deer. It's like, how, what could be more endearing? Yeah, like, when you, when you see the softer side of someone... You yeah. know, or something like that. Like, and it's not necessarily a side that you always see, or yeah, because my dad can be sort of a, a gruff yeah. fellow. Yeah, no, I get, I get that, and and I think I, I think I can be somewhat similar. Yeah, can't, <laughs> you know, can't we all? A little, little rough around the edges. Can't we all? I actually had to apologize to a couple of my friends the other day that I hung at, hung out with, quote, quote unquote, like online, just because I was having a really bad day and like it kind of seeped through in my experience with them that night, and I was not very nice in a couple of situations that I was like, yo, that's not me, I'm sorry, like blah blah blah, and they were like, no, it wasn't as bad as you thought, like it's cool and like we understand, you know, kind of thing, you know, whatever. But uh, all right, last question from Brent. Yeah, well, also, I mean, like, you know. I like that I notice and can apologize too. That's a that's yeah. a big deal. Like you need to be able to because potentially good friends. They're bad friends if you did something really horrible and deserve to be shit. Oh at, yeah, so. of course. Like there's there's definitely been that time where I'm but, like, uh, I presume that's not the case. Yeah, I will I will forgive you eventually, but you need to know what you did. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you need to be punished, kind of thing or whatever. All right, last question from Brent. Uh, what do you do to improve your mood when you're in a bad mood? I have one easy answer to this one, and this this one's very easy. So if I'm at home, I find my dog. Always makes me smile. Always immediately puts me in a better mood because, as you know, in your dog's eyes, you are a perfect being, and so I I want to be that person. My dog, like I think the world would be a perfect and amazing place if we all aspired to be the people our dogs thought we were. It's a great answer. There's other things, obviously, like sometimes I go play a video game or do something mindless or go watch a TV show I like or start drinking. You know, that's that's probably a little more destructive and not as, you know. 
I, I find it really helpful to have like two to three drinks if I'm mad and very not helpful to have more than that. Yeah, if you're like five or six mode, just don't leave your house. It, put, your, yeah. put anything that can be broken away. <laughs> yeah, you need, you need to be very careful with your portion control when consuming alcohol while mad. But those first two can just be very relaxing. Yeah, and if it's if you have a hobby that you like doing, do that unless it's something like magic or poker or something like that. Like I, I don't recommend doing that when you're like emotional in some way, especially if you're in a bad mood because it'll do it won't make you yeah. feel better. Like, I wouldn't want to do anything competitive. Yeah, don't do anything competitive. No, that's, that, that's a good way to put it. But something something constructive and it, the feeling of achievement is is quite the panacea. I can like literally see myself walking into my living room, grabbing my dog, lying down on my couch, and just putting her on my chest. And I'm just I'm good. Everything's fine. Even if it, even if it's something you don't like, like I really envy the people that compulsively clean when they're upset. I think that's a really healthy I thing to do. I didn't get that until the last like probably decade ish of my life. Maybe maybe less. Yeah. I didn't get that till you know I started owning things, and then now I get it a lot more. It's a very natural human reaction. Is when you when you have something that's out of your control. It's usually when like something happens to you that you can't control and you're upset about it. You control your environment around you. But you, you can accomplish that. You can take ownership of your your life in destructive ways. Yeah, of course. You, yeah, the yeah. key is to do it in constructive ways. And cleaning is a very constructive thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I've definitely done that multiple times. But maybe I haven't been in that bad of a mood lately. My house is a little bit of a well, at least the office is a little bit of a wreck. <laughs> the, the rest of the house is fine. But so I don't know. All right. Well, uh, I think that about. Does it for the questions uh, for this week? I'm sorry, for this episode of the Patreon episode. Uh, y'all really brought it again this time. I'm excited to do these again in the future. I've, how are you feeling so far? This is the second one of these we've done. Um, I feel like these are some of the easiest episodes that we do and like most fun because we get to kind of like freeform it. Yeah, well, we also, you know, I think the hardest part of the episode is us you know, planning exactly what we're, we want to talk about. And we're a little bit at the mercy of, you know, what's going on in magic at that point. Like if, if the results are the same two weeks in a row, it can get tough for us right here. That job is kind of taken out of our hands and our lovely, uh, you know, discord and, and patron members are great at just coming up with things for us to talk about. Once we have a topic, talking about shit is real easy. Yeah, it's almost that's like what we're good, good at, Tannen. Yeah, that's that. That's so, you know, so that they make it easy on us. I, I particularly liked this episode. I feel like it had more non-magic discussion than previous ones of these. And I like that. And I hope you all did, too. Yeah, I was going to say about that. I was like, we, we didn't have that many magic questions the first time we had a lot. And I'm not saying don't do that because, like, I always say this, I, I do love a good magic story. You know, it's, it's usually a story of something yeah. cool happening at a magic tournament or around a magic tournament. That is true. It's nominally about magic, mm-hmm. but not really. Yeah, it's usually something funny or ridiculous or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. And thanks to everybody who is a patron to the, to the show. Uh, we really appreciate your your support um, of the show so long. You know, if, if I'll say this. It hasn't been a year yet, but it feels like it's been well over a year. I mean, we're cl- we're coming up on a year. We're not that far away, Tannen. Are we going to do something fun for the year episode? I don't know. I think we should do like some cool thing, like the year in review. Um, like maybe have all of our guests back, you know, like have Spike, have have Todd in some way. Maybe not all in the show at the same time, but like, you know, do we, like a... We shouldn't get everybody excited. Let's talk about this outside of the show, Tannen. Yeah, I was going to say, we should, wanna... we should do something. I, I definitely shouldn't set the bar high. And yeah, then... I don't want to I don't want to overpromise. Yeah, but we, we can figure out something fun to do or maybe do We're some... We're going to do nothing. We're going to have no special events. We'll do... There will be no cake. The cake is a lie. We'll do, we'll do a giveaway. You get to have some beers of Ross. And what that means is that he'll probably call you on Discord and y'all can... 
talk over Discord <laughs> while he's... You'll be allowed to watch me stream. <laughs> yeah, you'll be allowed to watch... Yeah, exactly. It's like... And I will be drinking. <laughs> yeah, and we'll also be drinking copious, copious amounts of beer. But anyway, thanks for listening to uh, this episode of the patron... Uh, I don't even know what to call it. The special patron episode. Patron bonus episode. Yeah, and we will, we will have these more often if y'all just start pummeling us with questions. So make sure you start yeah, filling so that it's out. It's in the to dis- you. If it never happens again, it's your fault. Yep. And it's not us being lazy. Don't blame us for anything. Send all your complaints to at Shaheen Serrani on right. Twitter. And if there is anything actually wrong with it, that's also Brent's fault, not ours. So Yes, and Shaheen's. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening. I hope you've all enjoyed this episode. And for the people who are getting to listen to the episode, finally, what would be probably like, what, a month in the future? month and a half in the future whenever we release this to everyone time is an illusion tannin or as i've learned today time is a circle apparently yeah you're you're awesome you're still awesome thanks for the support of just listening to us we really appreciate it and uh yeah that's about it we'll see see y'all probably in what about a month and a half yeah bye